This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 8, 2020. Today was the day for the big jobs report for April, and it, like I said, like I predicted, was a doozy. Let's just go through the numbers and then see how the market reacted. The prior month uh, for March, it was originally listed as 701,000 jobs lost. It was revised down to 870,000. The forecast for April was 21.5 million jobs lost, and the actual was 20.5 million, so uh, a million less. Uh, the unemployment rate in March was 4.4%. The forecast for April was 16.4%. The actual was 14.7%. The participation rate fell from 62.7% to 60.2%, which was the lowest since 1973. Average hourly earnings rose 0.5% in March but rose 4.7% in April. Massive jump. But that was because more people lost jobs on the lower end of the pay range than the upper end of the pay range. So when you take out those lower paid people and you calculate the average, or you, cal- you calculate the uh, hour- average hourly earnings increase for the people that are left, which are higher paying people, then you're going to get a big increase in wages compared to the prior month, which had a lot more lower-paid people in the pool. So it's kind of it's it's kind of misleading, and that number will go down quite a bit when those lower-paid people co- start coming back to work. Average hourly, uh, um, let's see, that was so that was a month-over-month change, four point seven percent. The year-over-year percent change in average hourly earnings was seven point nine percent, up from three point three percent in March and the average work week number of hours worked was 34.1 in March and 34.2 in April so people are still working pretty much the same hours at least those who are still working now the stock market as I predicted yesterday uh, didn't crash and I said it actually it actually might go up today if it's if the report is better than expected and that's exactly what happened. Both the uh, loss in jobs and the unemployment rate were not as bad as expected, although they were close. So the market rose 455 points. Uh, that's the Dow Jones. Uh, so that and, you know, still have stimulus in the economy working its way through, uh, hopes for recovery, uh, all helped to uh, lift the stock market. <clears throat> We also had good news on Disney, who was uh, opening, uh, reopening uh, one of their uh, their theme parks in uh, China. I think on Monday they said, and they're going to be opening uh, one of their parks and their their their, uh, their main park in Florida uh, soon as well. And Boeing said they were going to be resuming production uh, at at least one or two of their, their I think they said their main plant. Uh, by the end of May. So all that stuff helped to lift the stock market nicely, 455 points. Now let's get into the nuts and bolts of this jobs report today. 
all of this data that I'm going to be sharing with you comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so you can look at it if you want. But I want to start out by saying, well, let's see here. I'm going to start out with the establishment survey. There's two there's two surveys that come out with the jobs report. The establishment survey, which is a which is interviews, or I should say surveys of businesses, and the household survey, which is surveys of people. So they they sometimes have different uh uh, takes on how things are going in the in the labor market. So we'll start out with the establishment survey. When it comes to the establishment survey, 20.5 million jobs were lost. That's what the uh, headline number was. And it was three times as many jobs lost just just in April as compared to the entire Great Recession about a decade ago. Pretty stunning. The average hourly earnings were up due to a change in the mix, like I said, and the job losses were the most in the leisure hospitality industry, which which lost 7.6 million jobs, and the least in utilities, which lost only 3,000 jobs. And just as a word of note, government lost 1 million jobs as well. <clears throat> now, as far as the household survey, the unemployment rate and the month-over-month -month change in the unemployment rate were both the most since records began in 1948. So everybody knows unemployment rate was around 24, 25%, something like that in the Great Depression, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics survey, as it is right now, uh, only started in 1948. So when you say it's the highest on record, it only means that it's highest since the survey started in 1948, but certainly not as high as it was in the Great Depression. Also, they said that the due to COVID-19, it was difficult to get uh, people to respond to the surveys. So they said there was a very low response rate compared to normal. So that skewed some of the numbers, most certainly. Although if they have enough surveys, then it probably wouldn't have changed the, the results all that much. Now, the uh, unemployment rate was the most for, or uh, by age, uh, teenagers saw a 31.9% unemployment rate, which is just massive. And adults 25 and over was 13.1%. Unemployment rate by race was the highest for Hispanics and the lowest for whites. By gender, the highest for women and the lowest for men. And by education, uh, people with people with a... Less than a high school diploma was 21.2%. High school graduates with no college, 17.3%. Some college or associate's degree, 15%. And a bachelor's degree and higher, 8.4%. So, less than a high school diploma rose by about three times. High school graduates with no college rose by more than four times. Some college or associate's degree rose by five times, and bachelor's degree and higher rose by a little less than four times. So, uh, devastation throughout the entire spectrum of education. When you see an 8.4% unemployment rate for people with a bachelor's degree and higher, 
that tells you that this is a very wide-ranging uh, pandemic that is hitting the labor market here. But still, uh, it's much lower than the other cohorts for education attainment levels. The labor force uh, uh, was saw, like I said, the lowest participation rate since 1973. And we also have the lowest employment population ratio on record. Fell to like 51.3%. So only half of the population is working right now. Or only half of the population is in, is in the labor force right now. No, let me repeat that. Employment population ratio is the number of people employed divided by, by population. So that means that only half of the people are working right now. Sorry for the confusion there. Now, the there are, there are several measures of the unemployment rate. The two most frequently cited are the U3, which is the, the main, main rate. That was 14.7% as previously stated. The U6, which includes uh, people who are marginally attached to the labor force, uh, which is calculated by the total unemployed plus the marginally attached plus the part-time workers divided by the civilian labor force plus the marginally attached. So it's a more complicated number, but it has a it tends to give a better idea about what the real situation is in uh, in the labor market. Uh, that number was 22.8 percent, so much higher than the 14.7 percent headline number. And the BLS stated that excluding workers with reduced hours, uh, the unemployment rate would have been 19.2%. Now, here's what I first I want to read this, what the labor, but the BLS said about this. Well, it's it's kind of long. I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll just read this part about the uh, uh, this this uh, issue with people losing their jobs says, if the workers who were recorded as employed but absent from work due to other reasons, over and above the number absent for other reasons in a typical April, if those people had been classified as unemployed or, or as unemployed on temporary layoff, the overall unemployment rate would have been almost 5 percentage points higher than reported, so it would have been around 19.7%, so close to 20%. However, according to usual practice, the data from the household survey are accepted as recorded. To maintain data integrity, no ad hoc actions are taken to reclassify survey responses. But here's my, here's my point on this. So they're saying if people who, had, who were employed but are not working, if they were classified as unemployed, it would have been a close to 20% unemployment rate which some people are saying is a more indicative measure of unemployment. Well, that's not really true. It's a more indicative measure of the impact of COVID-19 on, on workers and on labor, but it is. But the 14.7% is actually a better measure of the unemployment rate. And here's why. Think about this. If you are sitting at home and you are employed, even though you're not working, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be considered unemployed because you have a job. You still have a job if you're employed but not working. Exactly like if you went on vacation or took some time off uh, to, say, raise kids or care for a loved one. 
You would not be considered unemployed if you went on a two-week vacation, would you? You have a job, but you're not working. But you're still getting paid. Just like these people who are furloughed right now. They're employed, they're getting paid, but they're not working. So there's no reason to be counting those people as unemployed. So there shouldn't be any, you know, caveat here. There shouldn't be any, oh, the the unemployment rate should really be 20%. No, no, that's that's wrong. So anybody who says that, it's it's wrong. Even though they put that in uh, that in the the report, uh, that's just the wrong way to look at it. At least in my opinion. Okay, and the one other thing I wanted to show was, let's see, part time versus full time. If I can find that, and. Let's see here. The unemployment rate for people who are full-time workers is 12.9% and part-time workers 24.5%. So double for part-time workers as compared to full-time workers. And that makes sense because a lot of the jobs lost were lower paying and those tend to be more part-time jobs. So that makes sense. But still, it's just devastating to see these kinds of numbers all right so that's it uh well i have a couple other notes actually for the uh job report uh saw this video where this guy said a lot of teenagers won't have jobs this summer aggregate hours worked fell to 2011 levels uh we will most likely see a double digit unemployment rate still by the end of the year and we could need massive retraining of the workforce, which I've been talking about, and which you know I've been sharing new skills to learn over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so hopefully you've been listening to that. Uh, it says this is almost certainly the peak month for job losses, and I agree with that too. Uh, but one note I wanted to make personally is that unemployment will probably move higher as people come back to the labor force once these states start reopening. If you don't have a job right now and the states reopen and you start to look for a new job and you can't find a job, if you're looking for a job within the last four weeks when the survey is taken but you don't have a job, you're considered unemployed. But if you are unemployed and you have not been looking for the last four weeks, you are not considered unemployed. You are simply considered out of the labor force. So you're basically out of the calculation of the unemployment rate. I know it's a little technical, but uh, basically what it's saying is if you have more people coming into the, into the labor force and not finding jobs, you're going to have a higher unemployment rate. And I believe that's what's going to happen. Because a lot of uh, companies aren't going to be hiring, even though they open, they're not reopen. They're not going to be hiring due to still uh, uh, low demand, and some businesses have already gone out of business, so uh, those jobs are no longer going to be available either. All right, let's move on to some other news here. Uh, I found this interesting. I wanted to share this yesterday, but didn't have time. The Eurozone stability is faltering under the pandemic impact. Um, what's interesting here is that 
It says the, the crisis risks leading to severe distortions within the single market and to entrenched economic, financial, and social divergences between Euro, Euro area members states that could ultimately threaten the, dis, the stability of the economic and monetary union. Kind of like what happened during the financial crisis a decade ago. These countries all have different economies, different cultures, different ways of living and all this kind of stuff, but they're all under one monetary union or one, one currency and one central bank. So let's say, for example, Germany's economy is doing great uh, and say Greece's economy is doing terrible. Well, Greece would like to see lower interest rates to support their economy. And they probably almost probably like to see a, a, a weaker currency too to help their exports, but you can't do that when you all share the same currency and you all share the same central bank. So this pandemic has obviously hit different countries harder than others. Spain, France, Italy uh, have been really hit hard. So those economies would like to see lower interest rates. Germany, on the other hand, hasn't seed, seen a very uh, tough time with this pandemic, so they don't necessarily uh, want to see lower interest rates or need to see lower interest rates. So there's some disparity there between what countries need and want during this pandemic. I find that very, very interesting. It says Greece, Italy, and Spain are on course for the steepest falls in GDP since uh, this year all tumbling more than 9%. France has also hit hard with a contraction of 8.2%, while Germany suffers less with a fall of 6.5%. A ruling by Germany's constitutional court on Tuesday casting, cast doubt on the legality of bond buying by the ECB has added to the resentment. ECB asset purchases have helped keep government borrowing costs low, particularly, particularly in the more indebted countries. So, that's... Like I said, pretty interesting, and we'll have to see how that is uh, going to pan out going forth. Uh, now, uh, some news on U.S.-China tensions uh, are threatening a trade deal. Washington is eyeing more aggressive economic measures against China amid rising anger over Beijing's handling of the pandemic, threatening the trade truce struck less than four months ago. Deterioration in relations has been particularly jarring given the trade truce reached in January by Mr. Trump and, Ms. and Mr. Xi, which ended almost two years of tariff threats. U.S. officials have ruled out steps such now listen to this. U.S. officials have ruled out steps such as canceling Treasury debt-related payments to China, but potentially disruptive proposals to reduce U.S. dependence on Chinese supply chains, particularly in technology and healthcare sectors, are back on the radar, along with the possibility of more tariffs. Now think about this. What's easier? Well, it's easy to throw on tariffs, but it's also very easy to stop paying debt. But what is going to help our country more? Tariffs, which means that importers have to pay more for goods from China, or, and which, which hurts uh, both the company, either the company or their customers, or both, depending on how it's all you know spread out. Or, just not paying the debt, which alleviates about a trillion dollars for the U.S. to do whatever they want with it. Most likely, they would use it for maybe another stimulus deal. What do you think is a better better way to go here? If we stop paying our debt, 
every country in the world is going to know that it's not because we're, we're insolvent. It's because we are taking actions against a very rogue nation. Um, and they're not going to say, they're not going to say, oh, I'm now more concerned about the U.S. paying off their debt, at least on the top level. But it might make them concerned that if their country doesn't go along with the, what the United States wants to see in terms of political, economic, you know, military issues, whatever, that the United States would do the same thing to them. So it could have an adverse adverse effect in that respect, but I don't, I really don't think it would be all that big. So I think that, I still think it should be on the table to uh, completely cancel all debt payments to China. That way we wouldn't have to put tariffs on and we wouldn't be hurting our importers and uh, American consumers. Okay, uh, now here's another interesting thing here. Uh, European cities face transport conundrum as lockdowns lift. Cities across Europe are grappling with the same challenge. How to allow, how to allow people to start moving around again safely so as to get them back to work and into shops. Authorities are considering measures that range from widening pavements and reclaiming parking spots to adding buses. Many will also require people to wear masks while traveling on public transport. But here's what's interesting. Uh... It says, you know, we have all these European countries trying to do all these different things. Paris is also planning to enforce social distancing on public transport, for example. Crowded, metro bus, mu crowded metros, buses, and trains create favorable conditions for the virus to spread. But the routes they ply are also essential urban arteries, carrying workers from suburbs to shops and offices. But in Asia, where the virus started... Authorities largely sidestep this issue by not requiring social distancing to be respected on public transport. Now, I don't know if that means before, once the pandemic hit, or if that means now. But still, it just goes to show you that things are different in China than they are in Europe, or either they are now or they were at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> Here, here, the rest of the world is suffering massively in so many ways from this gosh dang virus that came out of China, and here, and China is not following all the rules that everyone else is following to try to keep the the spread limited. Unbelievable, just unbelievable. Cancel the debt. I'm telling you, cancel the debt. Uh, next thing up, this is interesting. Airbnb awaits time in the sun as Europe opens up. I'm not going to read all this, but what I wanted to say was, well, see, Airbnb has uh, cu is cutting 25% of its workforce. As the pandemic spread, Airbnb forced its hosts to give refunds to guests whose, whose travel had been interrupted. Many companies worry that even if travel restrictions are lifted, household budgets will be too light for consumers to book trips. To aid its recovery, Airbnb said on Tuesday it would also scale back its efforts to cater to high-end travelers and pause its plans to integrate transportation options to its service. To tide itself over, Airbnb last month... Okay, I don't need to worry about that. What I wanted to say about this is, let me ask you, if you are somebody who in the past has, has uh, let your, you know, rented out your house to somebody from another country, are you going to do that now? Who in the world...
amidst this pandemic would allow somebody in their house having absolutely no idea. I mean, they know where they're coming from, but they have absolutely no idea whether they have contracted the virus, have had it before, have it now, have antibodies, have been tested, or anything like that. Who in the world would do that? <laughs> I know I wouldn't. Oh, that's scary. Uh, here's another interesting thing. Mortgage-backed debt is under pressure as hotel owners fail to make payments. Where have we heard that before? Yes. The global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, which was started with, um, well, not started, but was very strongly driven by the fact that a lot of people couldn't make their mortgage payments due to all those crazy kinds of mortgages that were uh, being used. And so the housing market collapsed, and so all of the mortgage-backed debt collapsed, too, which led to uh, problems for banks, which led to pretty much the collapse of the whole economy. So now here we have a situation where this recession obviously didn't start as a financial crisis, but it could turn into one if these mortgage-backed debts these mortgage-backed debt securities that banks are holding and other investors are holding uh, start to sour as more and more companies and and people uh, have problems paying their mortgages. Keep an eye on that. Absolutely. Uh, it says that only 76.3% of hotel properties in commercial mortgage-backed securities deal, deals we're up to date on their mortgage payments in April. Well, I have no idea how that compares to normal, but that's pretty low. In the retail sector, the number of up-to-date borrowers dropped from 96.3% in March to 88.5% in April, while office properties showed a less than 1% decline. So for retail, about uh, an 8% decline. For office properties, only 1% decline. So that's interesting. Uh, let's see here. Well, I've I've talked enough about the meat industry. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Everybody knows what's going on with that. Hope everybody can go out and get enough beef, pork, and uh, and chicken before the the uh, low supply hits. Um, but stores are uh, limiting how much you can get. So. And uh, here's another ominous thing. Companies are dangerously drunk on debt. In the U.S., non-financial corporate debt was about $10 trillion at the start of the crisis. At 47% of GDP, it has never been higher. The moral, ha the moral hazard is obvious. When governments help indebted companies avoid bankruptcy, investors conclude that the government will absorb debt's tail risks, which means higher debt uh, or debt that accumulates as uh, as a result of a crisis. The price of debt goes down and its amount rises. So uh, that's not good. The Fed and the U.S. Treasury did put leverage limits on Main Street loans, saying they would not provide loans that push a company's total debt past six times its earnings before interest in taxes, depreciation, and amortization, known as EBITDA. EBITDA. But it quickly became clear that applying this rule rigidly would exclude too many companies. So I don't know what they what changes they made to that. Um, this 
note says the 2017 U.S. tax law limited the de limited the deductibility of corporate debt to 30% of income. This person is saying the deduction should be scrapped altogether with a decrease in corporate tax rates to compensate. So the net effect on the bottom line is zero. Well, that's interesting. Uh, let's see. There was a note here somewhere. Somebody said, and I think it was in another article where somebody said, uh, carrying more debt doesn't help a company grow its doesn't help the value of the company grow. And I thought that was probably one of the dumbest statements I've ever heard. If the value of a company doesn't grow by taking on more debt, nobody would take on more debt. Nobody would borrow at all. Of course it does. You borrow debt to increase your rev to increase your 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 investment so you can increase production, so you can increase sales, so you can increase revenues, so you can increase profits, so you can increase the value of your company. Whoever wrote that, oh my gosh, just Shouldn't even be writing. Just terrible. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on here. That's enough for today from that source. I'll go back to that uh, on Monday for a few other things. Okay. One other thing I just want to mention from that, I guess, was uh, the, United, the United Kingdom's recession is going to be the worst in, it says, 300 years it says the central bank predicted that output would slip 3% in the first quarter, followed by a further 25% fall in the second quarter. This would mean an almost 30% drop overall in the first half of 2020, the fastest and deepest recession since the Great Frost in 1709. Wow. That is really something else. All right. Um, one other note here. Dr. Atlas from the Hoover Institution says contact tracing does little good since so many people already have the virus. He says it's most useful at the beginning of a pandemic to contain the spread. It's illogical and impossible to do at this stage of the pandemic since so many people already have the virus. Uh, so, so, you know, how much more can we contain the spread than we already have? Testing, though, is still important for nursing homes, hospital workers, and symptoms of the virus. And one person also said that uh, it doesn't make any sense to do contact tracing unless containing the virus isn't necessarily your main goal. How about that? Yeah. People are concerned about this contact tracing that's going to be coming. It's going to be very invasive, and uh, I don't know how much it's going to be forced or whatever, but I just talked about this the other day. You know, somebody comes knocking on it from the government, comes knocking on your door, and they say, we need to, we've been told that you were in contact with somebody who we know has the virus, and we need to test you if you have the virus. You're going to let them test you? <laughs> that's going to be quite interesting to see how all that pans out. Uh, just a couple notes here on states reopening, and this is a nice segue into what I wanted to say about this. Uh, infection rates in states reopening are not nearly as high as in other states, and states reopening aren't necessarily seeing a lot of people coming back to businesses anyway, so they haven't really seen a big spike in cases. But I will tell you this, that... Uh, I did some research, and states that have reopened, opened on different days, 
let's just take a look. The states, uh, right now, this is as of yesterday, their percent increase in cases for states that opened on April 24, Georgia and Oklahoma, their average is 7.3% increase in cases as of yesterday compared to May May 3rd. May 3rd was when I did this, uh, this um, when I started doing this research. Uh, Montana, since May 3rd, or Montana opened on April 26th, since May 3rd, zero, absolutely not one new case. Uh, Vermont opened, oh wait, let's see, let's see here. Colorado, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Vermont opened on April 27th. Their increase since May 3rd is 6.5% on average. Wisconsin opened May, April 29th. Their increase since May 3rd, 11.9%. Florida and Alabama opened April 30. Their increase since May 3rd, 9%. Texas, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, North Dakota, and Arizona opened on May 1. Their average increase in cases since May 3rd, 10.1%. And on May 2, New Jersey opened their increase since May 3rd, 4.5%. So what I'm trying to show you here is, and, and my home state of Minnesota hasn't even reopened yet, and our increase in cases uh, from, uh, from May 3rd to yesterday is 29.5%. Well, there's a caveat there, and that's because we have a, we have a lot of testing going on in our state. We have a very good health care system here. Uh, the University of Minnesota and the Mayo Clinic are top-notch, so they're getting a lot more tests out there. So I don't necessarily think it's because more people are getting infected. I think it's because more people are, are being tested. But anyway, what I wanted to say was there is no discernible correlation whatsoever in the number of or in the increase in cases, the percentage increase in cases uh, for states that open earlier versus states that open later. No correlation whatsoever. So for those people who are saying, oh, these states are reopening too soon, absolutely not a valid point at all. I mean, we are going to see increases. There's no doubt about it for two reasons. One, people are going to get are going to uh, contract the, vi the virus uh, when they go back out into society. It's just going to happen. But two, every state, not just Minnesota, every state is increasing their testing. So it's going to be almost impossible to detect or to determine what is the cause of rising uh, number of cases. Is it because it's more testing or is it because pe more people are getting infected? It's going to be really hard to, to figure that out. Um, maybe they'll be able to, maybe they won't, but I think it's going to be really hard. All right, um, I'm not going to go over the coronavirus stats today. We've had way more than enough for today. Uh, on to my tip number 20 for how to stay sane during unemployment. Tip number 20 is under the second commandment of learn new skills. Tip number 20 is learn Google Analytics. Google Analytics is an excellent program for uh, analyzing the statistics for your website. Traffic, open rates, click rates, audience, uh, where your audience is coming from, where your audience lives, age, what websites are referring your your people to your website? Um, all kinds of statistics can be gleaned f by using Google Analytics, and all kinds of businesses uh, 
uh, would like to see their employees have Google Analytics experience. So tip number 20, learn Google Analytics. I took uh, some uh, online courses on Google Analytics and Google AdWords and passed both of the exams, but I haven't put it into use at all. <laughs> that's just me. All right, that's all for today. Please subscribe if you like what you're hearing and you have not subscribed yet. Please spread the word about my podcast. Uh, go ahead and listen to previous episodes if you'd like to get previous tips on how to stay sane during unemployment. And uh, that's all for today. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Thanks for listening to all the information today. hope it was valuable for you. Stay safe, stay sane, enjoy the rest of your day, and have a fantastic weekend.